Hello, everyone, and welcome to this first webinar in our 2023 science series on advocacy in rare disease, entitled Surveying the Landscape. I'm Erica Berg, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and I'll be the moderator for this discussion. This is our third year exploring the challenges and successes in the rare disease field, including diagnosis and detection, testing, research hurdles and opportunities, and mental health challenges. We've also looked at finding solutions and exploring options to improve opportunities for both researching and dealing with rare disease. In this first webinar, we're gonna shift our focus to advocacy and take a broad look at what advocacy looks like in the rare disease space. Who are the players? What can organizations bring to the table? And what can we learn from successful advocacy campaigns from outside the rare disease space? Finally, a thank you to Foundation Ipsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. I'd now like to take the opportunity to welcome a really fantastic panel today. I'll give each of them a chance to say hello and introduce themselves. And I'll start with Dr. Duran Wongrieger, since she's a returning guest, having been on one of our webinars a couple years back. Welcome, Duran. Thank you very much, Erica, and thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. My name is Durham Wallrieger. I am president and CEO of the Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders. I'm also chair of Rare Diseases International, which is our global alliance of rare disease organizations. And actually, right now, I'm in Geneva, Switzerland, having just come back from a uh, open session with the WHO on essential medicines lists and uh, really advocating there for the inclusion of rare disease drugs within WHO's essential medicines. Wow, fantastic. How timely. Thank you, Duran. I'd also like to welcome another returning expert, Flaminia Machia. Thank you so much for being here, Flaminia. Thank you very much for the opportunity. So I'm currently a Roche employee. I started very recently at Roche on the 1st of March as Senior Global Patient Partnership Director dedicated to Huntington's disease. I'm also the former Executive Director of Rare Diseases International, so Duraine is my former chair. Hello. <laughs> And yes, I've been um, an advocate for rare diseases for the past more than 20 years. And the views that I will share during this webinar are my personal views. Thank you. Thank you, Flaminia. Uh, and next we have Michael Manganiello. Welcome, Michael. Uh, thank you, Erica. Um, uh, I'm Michael Manganiello, and um, I'm the CEO of Pixis Partners. Um, we're a professional services firm that focuses on public policy, engagement, advocacy. The moment, I think one of our primary goals is uh, diversity in clinical research, which is um, a, quite a big problem. Um, I am honored to be here with um, such impressive uh, panelists, scientists, and doctors. Um, I, however, am not any of those. Um, uh, I, I guess my strength is my um, role as a patient advocate. And uh, that's what I've spent my whole career in, in three sort of different avenues. Um, I've been HIV positive for 35 years. 
So HIV was the beginning. Um, I ran the Christopher and Dana Reed Foundation for a decade and uh, learning about the challenges of spinal cord injury and research and care and cure was my second. And the third now is I work for lots of organizations, but all from the spectrum of the patient advocates. So I'm honored to be here today. I'm gonna to probably talk about different kinds of models of uh, advocacy than rare diseases, though I've dealt with the rare disease populations many times over the years, including Nord, which is of course the American version. Uh, anyway, so there we are. Thank you, Michael. And finally, a warm welcome to Dr. Mark Patterson. Many thanks for joining us, Mark. <clears throat> Thank you, Erica. I'm also very honored to be a part of this distinguished panel. I've had the privilege of working with children and families with rare diseases for the last 30 years since I was a fellow at NIH. I'm currently a professor of neurology, pediatrics, and medical genetics at Mayo Clinic. The main focus of my work is on inherited metabolic diseases in children, particularly lysosomal disorders and congenital disorders of glycosylation. I'd have to say one of the highlights of my career has been the opportunity to work with advocacy organizations, uh, not just because you feel you're accomplishing something that's useful, but because of the uh, tremendous energy and uh, enthusiasm of these groups uh, and the huge need there is uh, in this community. So thank you again for the opportunity to take part today. Thank you, Mark. So I thought we'd start with some basic definitions. Um, so advocacy is defined as the public advancement of a cause. Very basic, but I thought I would ask, um, put the question to you. Uh, Michael, how do you define advocacy? So I, while well, advocacy is a great word, I, I think of advocates as more powerful than that. I think of them as activists, because in order to be successful at promoting whatever cause you're, you're uh, trying to advance, you have to be passionate. You have to get people's attention. You have to hold people accountable. You, have, you need to find leadership of people that will stand up for your cause, um, and you have to mobilize your community. So I, I, advocacy is a great word. It's not big enough for me. Great. Um, does anyone else have a, a different or um, idea about advocacy who wants to share? I don't know if it would be different, Erica and Michael. I really, you know, spent um, certainly my early years. I'm a psychologist by training, taught for about 20 years. I have two children, both with rare disorders. So we started off advocacy. It was the daughter with an undiagnosed disease. So as a personal advocate, right, you're forever trying to get diagnosis, trying to get attention, trying to get support for him from a system which even in Canada, which is a wonderful healthcare system, has no capacity for actually dealing with people that fall outside the norm. So this is, you're an advocate. So I agree with Michael, part of it is being an advocate. Um, part of it also is, and I've spent um, many years, um, Michael, um, as an advocate for hemophilia and HIV. That was kind of my early start. And we were definitely advocates. We were there on the picket lines. We were there helping to launch lawsuits. We were there fighting for access to therapies. But part of that also is I learned a lot is how to be an inside advocate as well as an outside advocate. And I'm sure you have as well. You know, it's one thing, as we say, to be there making a noise outside and to really being able to get attention. 
But as we say, you can make as much noise as you want outside, but unless you can get into the room and at the table, you're not going to make a significant change. So we've learned a whole lot over the years that there are many shades of being an advocate. There are many ways of being an advocate. And there are many different people Mm. that have to come together in order to make advocacy work. The biggest challenge is, quite frankly, not too much getting other people to pay attention, but for us to be able to work together and not kill each other along the way. Thank you, Duran. <laughs> and uh, sort of playing off that, um, this this webinar is all about surveying the landscape. So let's talk a little bit about who are the players in the advocacy landscape for rare disease. Um, we've talked about patients, um, and maybe Duran, I know, there are organizations that are involved in advocacy work, but I'd, I'd like to hear from you um, you all about and sort of how do we paint this landscape with the players in advocacy? Um, maybe, so we have um, our, our governments, for example, um, involved in advocacy work. Our, um, is industry involved in advocacy work? Um, where where are all the advocates in the rare disease space? Um, Flaminia, do you want to take a crack at that? Yes. So surely advocates are, you know, persons who support a cause on behalf of a group of uh, people beyond their own individual interest. And that is for uh, promote some strategy or policy or legislative change, etc. The most legitimate advocates are persons living with the disease themselves, either either as patients or as caregivers, family members, loved ones, and also uh, persons that are professionally involved with NGOs or civil society organization. However. From an industry perspective now, there are employees who have the important role to gather the perspectives from different patient communities in specific disease areas and bring it within the company, the so-called outside-in. So these are typically you know, people like me, patient uh, partnership, patient engagement people, in the sense, they're advocates in the sense that they interact with patient communities outside and then advocate internally to make this patient's input and contribution heard and acted upon within the company. So these persons also have the role to inform patient communities about companies strategy and decisions, and sometimes they're difficult ones. So this is more inside out. And these roles are highly scrutinized and have to obey by a strict set of rules to ensure respect, independency, transparency, and absence of undue influence. Thank you. And Mark, I was hoping you could give us the perspective of sort of the medical professional in the advocacy um, world and, you know, what role does advocacy play um, in treatment and in research in the medical space? Thank you, Erica. I I think my uh, colleagues have given a beautiful definition. And I think what you take out of this is that advocacy is a team sport. 
but you really have to work cooperatively together, as Duhaime said, without killing each other. And and, and I, I know that was said jokingly, but it is important to remember with the sort of disorders we're talking about, passions run high. And so it's important to take that into account. But but just to come back to where the medical profession fits in, I think we have an inside-outside approach there too, because within medicine, it's very important to advocate for the to be an advocate for the importance of rare diseases. You know, we're taught in medical school things are important if they're treatable and if they're common. Well, a lot of rare diseases currently don't have treatments, although I'm confident that they will. Uh, but getting people to understand that anyone who's sitting in your office at any time may have an, a rare or ultra-rare disease is extremely important. Don't discount the possibility because something is rare. I have seen patients, and I'm sure my colleagues have had the experience indirectly of being told it couldn't be this disease because it's too rare. And I have seen many patients who've been told that previously. So I think that advocacy in terms of education within the profession, as well as the community as a whole, is a very big part of advocacy. Mm -hmm. If I may, I'll share one small anecdote uh, about Please. opportunities for advocacy, because I think you should always take them. I was at a, a gathering where I was being presented with an award, and I had an opportunity to speak to a U.S. senator, and I thought, what can I tell this man? Uh, this gathering was about an ultra-rare disease. And so what I said to him was, you know, Senator, this is an ultra-rare disease which probably affects 500 people in this country, but there are thousands of rare diseases, and there may be 30 million people in the United States with a rare disease. When he uh, gave his address to the gathering shortly afterwards, he led off with saying, ladies and gentlemen, there are 30 million people in the United States with rare diseases. So I thought, yes, that's a victory for advocacy because it gets the attention of our legislators to understand that these disorders collectively are extremely important. They constitute not just a great burden to the individuals and families affected by them, but to the community as a whole. So I think that I think that education is a key part of advocacy, and I think persistence and taking the opportunity always to be an advocate when it arises is an important part of that role. Wow, that's a great story. You Thank know, you. And for a second, Erica, because yeah. I think what Mark says illustrates a couple of things that are so important. I mean, one is obviously having people that have the ear inside, as Flaminia said, to actually carry that message. But also, you know, I think Mark had a lot of credibility in carrying the message. You know, it could have been a patient and it may have made an impact, but it might not have made the same impact. So I think as we're going along, life is actually getting as many allies as possible to help carry that message, but also knowing who is the best emissary to actually deliver that message. And sometimes it is being able to, I mean, you know, step aside and say, okay, you know, you're going to be better at this than I am. And even though, you know, I might feel very passionate about it, sometimes it isn't just the passion. It's having the credibility and not feeling threatened when somebody else actually comes forward. So, again, as Mark and others have said, it definitely is a team sport, but it takes many different kinds of players as well, right? So if we all kind of wanted to pitch, then it ain't going to work. So we all need to kind of be able to look at, okay, where am I best position? And what can I do? And when do I, when do I pass that ball? Yeah, um, and Duran, I'm curious if you could share um, a little bit about sort of what the role of 
an umbrella organization like CORD is in the advocacy landscape? Maybe share a little about how your organization works and how um, how you deal with advocacy issues when you are representing so many um, patient advocacy groups. You're asking me at such an exciting time in Canada, um, and for many of will know, you know, Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders um, is a little sister, little cousin to NORD, which is the big umbrella organization in the U.S., and we've kind of tucked ourselves behind NORD, and we've also tucked ourselves behind Euro Europe, the Eurorders. But in Canada, we have been fighting for many years trying to get a rare disease strategy, trying to get recognition for rare diseases. As I said, we've got great universal health coverage. That means, though, in some cases, there's not a, a real interest in looking at those very small rare ones because, you know, we're looking at big popular. So we've been fighting for many years trying to get a rare disease strategy um, following the models of others. And we finally, about a month ago, got the announcement that government has finally agreed that they are announcing what they promised about three years ago, you know, $1.5 billion to invest in a rare disease drug strategy. Not insignificant. I mean, as my I say to my American friends, it's Canadian dollars, so it's only about three quarters of a U.S. dollar, but it's okay. <laughs> you know, it still means a lot to us. But I'll tell you, to get there, we had to bring in all the players. And I think that means, you know, getting the researchers, getting the clinicians, getting the pharma companies, getting policymakers all lined up. But it was really the case that Ford, as the patient organization, led the way and also led the fight for what that strategy ought to look like, that it really needed to serve the needs of the people comprehensively and to be able to get everybody to hold the line to agree on what those core concepts would be, the core set of principles would be, and to agree to really work together, you know, in that environment. And I mean, those are things we actually learn from, you know, other organizations. But we're about a hundred organizations in Canada, and our, you know, our task was kind of keeping everybody moving together. In part because some diseases had access to therapies early on. Some diseases had access to much better diagnosis and treatment. Um, and not all the diseases, you know, most of the diseases don't have anything. So how do you get people to kind of say, we want to be part of this and we recognize this is happening, but we don't have a diagnosis, we don't have treatments yet, we all need to be part of it. And this is something we learned, I mean, Mark, Michael, you will know, a long time ago, we were first doing hemophilia and it was HIV. The challenge came up was, you know, there's some people that had the good version of HIV and those people had the bad version of HIV. And we have to stick together and say HIV is HIV and everybody's in this together. And I think that was a really, really important road that we had to fight there is keeping everybody together, even though we're all different places and people have different needs. The important thing as well is that, you know, recognizing it's not a zero-sum game. The minute we get into a trap where we feel like, okay, and this is what I hate to say pejoratively, what governments like to do, what health systems like to do, we only have so much money. We can fund this, but we can't fund that. We're going to go to here and we'll look for those results. That's not the answer. And we, as a community, have to stick together. And I always say, you got to remember who the enemy is. The enemy is not each other. The enemy is out there. And as long as we stick together, we can win. But the minute we start to allow ourselves to be pulled apart, we're going to get nothing. And that's going to let everybody walk away and say, see, we told you so. So 
the biggest part with working as an umbrella organization is getting everybody to stick together and to follow a common message. But that means we have to listen real hard, too. We can't just say, okay, come in this direction. I know what the right thing is to do. You follow me. It's me also, and we also, from many will know that. How do we listen to, you know, 150 different countries and 85 different organizations on the global level to say, some people low middle income, some people high middle, high income. How do we make sure that we're having that same global message? We do it part by listening to everybody and making sure that we're paying attention to what, you know, I can get in by do anything I want so long as I'm listening to what you need. Thank you. Uh, if I could, if I could just please, Duran, that what you said is so critically important, particularly in the beginning of the days of HIV when we were so desperate, but we had leadership like Lowell Weicker and. We, all of a sudden we started to get funding. Well, then we were getting too much funding and the other disease groups were going, why is HIV getting so much funding? And we're not, we sort of called a summit about all the groups. And we said, look, at the, the, the higher the water, the higher the boats float. And, and a little bit more complicated than that, but people finally got it. But what they really got was that because of the HIV advocacy, we were the ones that led the way for accelerated approval for parallel tracks so that diseases of any kind have that same access. And even to this day, it was so interesting, when COVID hit, the mRNA vaccines are a product of the work that was done during the eight days of HIV. So you just never know what's going to lead to what. So you all have to be on the same page rowing the same boat in the same direction. I couldn't agree more. Great, thank you. Um, one other aspect before we sort of move on to the next section of this webinar that I just wanted to touch on is sort of this, um, this global um, aspect of advocacy, that it's not just a variety of rare diseases, it's a variety of regions around the world. Um, uh, Flaminia, maybe you could speak to are there differences in approaches or even definitions of ad advocacy depending on where in the world you are, different approaches? Um, any thoughts on that? Yes, so um, rare diseases organizations may be very different. Um, like different sizes, different resources, different maturity levels or political sophistication to feel empowered to talk effectively with policymakers. Um, but in the end of the day, I believe that the objective is always to try and make rare diseases as a policy priority, right? So most challenges are shared everywhere and across rare diseases. So in the end of the day, we are all talking about lack of knowledge and information, lack of experts and expertise, lack of investment, challenges in accessing uh, diagnosis, social medical care, diagnostics, uh, high quality medicines, etc. However, from my experience at RDI, and please, Doreen, feel free to step in whenever, um, I, I have seen some regional uh, specificities, like uh, very broadly speaking, the European approach is more or tends to be more holistic, 
and uh, integrate more the medical and social care aspects with patient representatives progressively being more involved in the value assessment of new health technologies. Mm. Um, if we think about the African approach, it would focus more on awareness raising of rare diseases as an issue and health system financing and strengthening, starting really from primary care, community uh, workers, continuity and integration of care. Actually, please, Doreen, interject any time, but Africa is awakening to rare diseases thanks to the dedication and dynamism of some young HCPs and some emerging civil society organizations. So now we all also have the newly established African Medicines Agency, so that could be a step in the right direction. I'm going to dare saying something about Asia, even though Doreen is here, so she will say much more. But Asia is very complex. So it covers countries that are extremely different in size, income levels, healthcare systems. So Japan, Bangladesh. I mean, I think the focus still remains on access. And I don't know, I mean... Uh, in Latin America, I believe that access to therapies and diagnoses uh, remains like the key focus. And there is this very specific Latin American trend, which is a judicialization of, of care with people who can afford it going more and more to court to get access to uh, uh, treatments. So, and this reinforces inequalities, actually. So I will let Doreen uh, uh, step no, no. in. This <laughs> is what I would say. You've done it brilliantly, Flaminia, but I think what you've alluded to, and I think it's important, I'm really interested in Michael and Mark's context, is this, it's the political context. I mean, what we know is across Asia, many of the Asian countries, and as you say, even though it varies in terms of income and in terms of access, there is a strong sense among many patients that they don't have a right to health care. That mm -hmm. sense of, you know, Americans, I mean, I'm an American as well as a Canadian, grew up in the U.S. So, you know, there's that strong sense that we have a right and that you have a right and you have a right to advocate. Whereas in many cases, you have to get people there to feel like, okay, you need to speak out, you can speak out, and it's not only your right to do so, it's important that you to do so. So I think there's a lot of deference there, even at the individual level. That's what my healthcare professional says. That's what the government says. I think Latin America is kind of the opposite. There's a strong sense that we have a right to, but there's a political squashing of it, depending on the political environment, right? And as you say, a very litigious environment where people have a right, but the answer is you have a right to it, but you have to sue me for it. You know, if you can sue me, you can get access. Anybody can get access as long as they can sue, which is kind of a strange way of doing it, right? But I would love to know from both Michael and Mark, because the texture in the U.S. is so rich. If you go from one sector to another, depending on how you look at it, right? I mean, Mark, you know that, you know, you're at the Mayo Clinic, but you know, I mean, the different layers in terms of people and the different ethnicities and the different kind of income levels and educational levels, I would say, you know, that's about as rich as you would get globally in terms of advocacy and people and how they actually approach and get access to the system. Yeah, I 
Well, you've expressed it so well, Duhain, and it's true. I, I, I wish I could say in the United States that everybody had equal access to care, but we know that's not the case. So we, we have a lot of cleaning up to do in our own backyard. Um, but equally, there are other countries where I think people are good advocates. It happened that I was in Vietnam last week and visiting the Women and Children's Hospital in Da Nang, and I saw a child with POMP disease receiving enzyme replacement therapy, uh, and I have to give credit to the pharmaceutical industry because the family, who are great advocates for this child, were able to access this very expensive therapy through an outreach program of the, the manufacturer. But, but I think, uh, yeah, it, it's true. The point is inclusiveness. We have to work towards access. And I think one of the ways in rare diseases and ultra-rare diseases that we achieve inclusiveness is to make sure that as many countries as possible have the opportunity to participate in research. Because if we're going to research ultra-rare diseases, we must work together internationally to have a chance of capturing a patient population uh, so that we can actually execute studies. So I think that's a great opportunity to, uh, for our advocacy to advocate for opportunities to participate in research because in ultra-rare diseases, rare diseases, that's a very important aspect of access. Um, so I think that's, that's one way we can work together. The political aspect is very important. In the United States, we do now have a rare disease caucus. So there are members of the Congress who get it, who understand, who are receptive. And I think we have to work with them again in a cooperative fashion, ideally as a united rare disease front to the greatest extent we can, but taking advantage of the stories of individuals and families, because they're powerful. And I, and I think we must never discount those as, as part of the whole, the whole framework. One other aspect of research I'd mentioned uh, which combines advocacy is the way that rare disease communities for specific diseases can come together internationally. I'll give you the example of the International Neiman Pick Disease Alliance. That's an ultra-rare family of diseases where there are a, a number of national groups which have come together under this umbrella which permits sharing of information, uh, sharing about information on research, uh, and in addition they have set up a registry now, this is not unique, but it's a new model where it's a registry which is owned and controlled by the advocacy group with participation of academics and industry so that it will be an ongoing sustainable resource uh, for that community. And I think this is terribly important because we know that in academic medicine, sometimes registry data is lost if someone loses a grant or retires or moves out of an area. Uh, in industry, once a registry has done its job, for example, for approval of, a, of an agent, then it may be lost. So this data is absolutely precious, and I think we have to do everything we can to preserve it. So that's one model where advocacy has been key to developing a sustainable, a sustainable resource for a rare disease community. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I think the West has an oversized influence on African countries and the poorer nations. I think one of the challenges is, and I know Flaminia is going to change everything at Roche, but pharma's not been the greatest player in all of this. Up until now, clinical trials have been done on white straight men. Mm -hmm. President Obama's signature scientific initiative was the All of Us Research Program. 
We luckily got the engagement award. We built a network of trusted partners across this nation from black churches to YMCAs, people that, that minority populations are underserved in biomedical research populations. Listen to trust. There's a lot of mistrust of science. And we have now, we have genetic data on almost 250,000 Americans, the majority being minority populations. But an interesting story going back to the HIV AIDS days when, and this is where the politics is important. This is where a Dr. Fauci standing up and members of Congress standing up made the difference because that's where the funding comes from. And that's where the leadership comes from. And that's where PEPFAR came from, which was you know the, the international uh, uh, initiative to help people with HIV in Africa. Dr. Fauci went over and scientists up until then said, what's the point of getting antivirals to Africa? They can't tell time. They don't wear watches. Dr. Fauci got there and they were taking their meds regularly. Anyway, he changed the face. We've changed the face of Africa with regard to HIV AIDS, but that took leadership politically, scientifically, people like you, um, because I think we bring our own prejudices with us to these other countries and we have to stop that. We have to think scientifically from the, and the voice of the patient's critical in all this. Anyway, I, I have to say, I haven't been on a panel this exciting in a long time. So thank you all. Can I jump in for a second though, before I forget, I won't forget about it, but I just want to say, Mark, I in serendipity. I just got a note in my inbox connecting me with the name and pick community here in Canada. We're looking to do some advocacy for submission for a new therapy. And I wrote back and said, we need to reach out to the U.S. because we don't have a big enough community here to actually have the information and people that have been on this therapy. So I'm going to catch you in, in coming this. This is what we need to do, right? And this is kind of what, as Michael was saying, how the disease community works, right? We reach across, we help each other. There are no barriers between patients and patient organizations. I know they're going to respond and they're going to give me all the help that they can. Great, because now I don't have to go searching for where I'm going to find this name and picks community. I got an exact end to it. So Erica, if nothing else, this has been a great opportunity for me to help get, you know, a need met right here, right now. <laughs> but I, I really do think this partnering and this cooperation among diseases is critical. When we were in the middle of the embryonic stem cell debate, petrified that the federal government was going to shut the door to federal funding. We were so successful. We kept the door open. We passed the Stem Cell Research Enhancement Act. Unfortunately, President Bush vetoed it twice, but that's okay. We kept the door open enough, but we brought patient advocates in from all over the country. Smart. These people were smart underestimated by, by because they were so knowledgeable of their own disease. And we brought a woman in, Elizabeth, who, whose daughter had Rett syndrome, a terrible disease that strikes little girls. <clears throat> but by being part of this larger, broader coalition that supported stem cell research, Elizabeth and her daughter in a wheelchair testified before Congress. This raised awareness to Rett syndrome by levels that had never been raised before. So I do think this cooperation just is so critically important. And, and the first therapy for Rett's is now out. Yes. Uh, I'm going to let the stem cell coalition. <laughs> we haven't got access to it yet, but it's there and it's been approved. So there be, I, I didn't know that. I'm really. The long road. Yep. So 
hopefully, you know, Elizabeth and her daughter there are able to figure out how they get access, or maybe really? they've been clinical trials. This is amazing. Amazing. That is really if exciting. I could jump in, mm -hmm. If I may just make one more comment about this in terms of research, just to reinforce what you've said, it's so important to listen to the community because for so long, one of the big problems in medical research was our outcomes would be things we could measure because they were easy to measure. But they weren't necessarily what really mattered to the patients. And one of the, I think, most exciting parts of my journey has been learning from my patients. They're my greatest teachers. I, I've had great professional teachers, but they don't match the patients and the families. And I think we have to listen to them. And fortunately, there is some awareness of this. The patient-focused drug development groups at the FDA, I think, are a really great development. Uh, they have to listen. They have to listen to them. But it's a start. And I think taking patient-driven outcomes into account really makes a huge difference because they're not always easy to measure. But for someone with a, a devastating neurological disease, the ability to make transfers may be a huge difference in their daily life. Even though it's not easy to measure, it's not a traditional outcome. So I think this is just another aspect of advocacy where we're working together and it's a reciprocal relationship that's going to drive the field forward. Sorry to butt in. Just one final, to, to, to Mark's really valid and great point. Uh, during the HIV AIDS crisis, we um, smoke bombed the um, campus of the NIH and left flyers everywhere. And Dr. Fauci picked one up and it had a lot to do with the science. And, the, uh, and aspects of clinical trial design. And he read it and he goes, this is kind of interesting. And he told his scientists, his team, we're gonna bring some of these activists in. And they said, you're not bringing these activists in, but we're not meeting with them. And then Dr. Fauci said, well, you either meet with them or you don't have a job. <laughs> Ultimately what happened though was patients became part or at least had input into clinical trial design. And it was critical. And not every HIV patient was that smart or got that smart, but a small group did get that smart and smart enough. And it really made a big difference to Mark's point. Patients know what they they know what they know. So but can yeah. I say can I say the negative side of that though, Mark? And that is listening to patient reported outcomes. Sometimes it makes an impact and sometimes it doesn't, right? And that's the real challenge. You know, we had a young man, 26 years old at SMA. He had, you know, kind of come much later than the early treatment, right? So he's already in the wheelchair. There's a new therapy that's out. It is funded. It is approved for patients up to 25 years old. He is 26. And guess what? They are saying no to him. He has actually made a documentary. He's been able to come in and do the testimony. He has enough movement in just one hand in order to continue to operate. He's got an extended arm. He was able to demonstrate what he could do with this extended arm. And guess what? He still. I mean, it breaks your heart when you see this. And then we put the poor company in a bad spot because they're basically saying to the company, why don't you just give them the drug? But at what point do you stop, right? If I give him the drug, then who else do I give the drug to? And who else do I give the drug to? And we know that, you know, at some point, immediately after he gets the drug, he goes away or he doesn't really. He's an amazing young man. But, you know, and he says, all I want is they say, it wouldn't make a big difference. We don't see you getting mobility back. You're not going to get out of the chair and walk again. All I want to do is have enough movement in one finger so I operate my robotic arm, you know, using my computer. And he can do it. And he can demonstrate that. I mean, this and this arm is so amazing. You can put mascara on with it. 
not to put mascara on, but you know how amazing this is. And yet we're still saying no. I mean, I hope that somebody from our province of British Columbia is listening to this and feels ashamed. Well, I think, you know, I, I think that really speaks to the whole issue about flexibility and where do you draw the line. Uh, and so I understand the point because we find ourselves on either side of this. I, I don't think there's an easy answer, but, you know, I think we, we have to rethink the way we make rules about these things and we have to be more individualized because one of the things that the rare disease community is bringing to biomedical science overall, I think, is the appreciation that one size does not fit all. And that as we're increasingly, I mean, every week we're identifying new diseases. I think we're recognizing that many common syndromes are really families of rare diseases, which is why our therapies don't work very well. So when we truly have precision medicine, we're going to have to have individualized outcomes. So I think the point you've raised is extremely important. How do we have a way of ensuring that we can measure an outcome in an individual to achieve a meaningful improvement? And there are, of course, there are issues of cost, and I understand that that's always behind this. But, but I think you raise a really important point that maybe the whole community needs to think differently about this. And... If it teaches, if rare diseases teaches anything, it is that one size does not fit all. We really have to tailor the treatment and the measurement of the outcome to the individual. I'll say one other thing, Doreen. I'm going to talk from the exact point of view of the patient. Give them the drug. That's why there's parallel tracks. That's why there's compassionate use. Parallel tracks, they don't even, the FDA doesn't look at that data on the passionate use side. They only look at the trials. You got nothing to lose and that kid might keep his finger. Give him the drug. Sorry, I got no. all activist. That's that's the energy we want here. Um, so I think we've already done a lot of this, but one of the reasons I was really excited to bring this group together was um, so that you could hear each other's success stories and that anyone watching this webinar could hear some advocacy success stories that could uh, inspire um, them in their own work. So, uh, Michael, if you had an uh, example of a successful strategy that you've used to advocate for people uh, living with HIV AIDS that you'd um, share with us, we would love to hear. Yeah, um, I, it's interesting. It's an interesting question, particularly in now that, you know, we're I just went on Cabanuva. For 30 years, 32 years, I've been on thousands of pills a day. And now I get one shot every two months. It's like a, so it's been many years past. But I, a couple of years ago, I started hearing other patient advocacy groups going, was ACT UP, which was our big advocacy group um, that was doing the smoke bombing and all that stuff, but getting the attention. Um, was it just a moment in time or, or what, you know, with a million young men dying or were there any lessons to be learned? So I wrote a report on it called Back to Basics. And I interviewed everyone from Jim Kern from the CDC to Dr. Kessler, who was out of the FDA, to Becky Hamburg, who was Tony's assistant, to a, a whole bunch of people, to Dr. Fauci, to Larry Kramer. And we thought that I did determine that there were lessons. And one of them was getting attention. But to your point, I can't remember which of you said it, it's not just getting the attention. What do you do when that you have the attention? That's what's critical, right? 
So you have to bring knowledge and solutions to the table. You can't just get to everyone, get attention. Um, you have to mobilize your community, um, which is what we did. Uh, you have to hold people accountable. That's a holding you guys accountable. And we did. And then it was sort of growing leaders, both political, uh, uh, just well-known people, actors, anyone that can get attention, that can keep the momentum going. Those five steps are, are still applicable today and can be followed today. And I'm going to send the, th the three of you my report I wrote because I think you'll appreciate it and, and enjoy the read. So um, we had such great success. Look, at people are still uh, getting HIV today. But it's so it's a manageable chronic illness. It is not a death sentence. That's a success. Now we lost a half a million young men. Not great, but we're uh, I'm here, so I consider that a big success. Thank you, um, Flaminia. I know you haven't been at Roche for that long, but you have a long history uh, in in advocacy in rare disease. Is there a, a, a success story you've had at Roche um, that you'd like to share or from your previous work? So first I would like to add something. Um, when you said uh, one size does not fit all, I would also add that one player cannot change it all alone. And so when we think about just going back one second to the role that industry can have in advocating for rare diseases, where industry has the primary role and responsibility to deliver high quality medicines to patients. Okay, that's that's the its main goal and role. But from there, there is obviously the role of continuing investing in rare diseases and continuing developing these medicines, hearing more and more from patients and also advancing science for all. That means that industry needs to keep on talking and taking uh, insights from people living with rare diseases themselves and I would like to underline that industry also has a say with other players, but in the overall debate about healthcare system restructuring and strengthening. I think we really need to tackle um, all of these issues about access and advocacy for rare diseases within the broader frame of uh, social justice and identify together where changes savings can be made and look at healthcare systems as a whole and as an investment in healthier society rather than only as mere costs. So that's one thing. When it comes to an experience in terms of successful advocacy, well, uh, Durin knows it more than anyone else, but obviously for rare diseases international at global level, the adoption of the UN resolution was, was a big success and demonstrating that, you know, with all the differences that we mentioned about regional approaches and country approaches, well, we can actually work together at global level and being impactful. And I think, Doreen, we can share a couple of um, 
ingredients uh, for a successful uh, recipe. I think it does start with clarity of the overall purpose and these shared objectives within realistic timelines, but also the agility to adapt to unforeseeable circumstances such as COVID. You know, we were able to get the UN resolution on rare diseases within COVID times, which is which nobody really expected us to, to succeed. Um, and also, it's important that one uh, organization kind of takes the lead and coordinates the campaign and to have consistent interactions between the local level, national level, regional level, and global level while building capacities and mobilizing the grassroots and reaching out to policymakers in a coordinated, coordinated way. And I heard someone else saying it, that each actor should play its own most effective role without overlapping and undermining each other and never give up. Great, thank you. Um, and Mark, do you have um, a story to share? not, I have one I could suggest for you to share. I actually um, first came across your name after uh, I encountered this inspiring full-page ad in the New York Times about a research fund set up by twins with late-onset Tay-Sachs disease. Um, and by researching them, I came across you and all your wonderful advocacy work. But um, sound like that was an example of a uh, successful strategy in advocacy. I don't know how you want to talk about that story or something similar, but it was inspiring to see this full page ad um, telling their story and, and it was really impactful. Yeah, I, I, I think any success I talk about is the success of others. Mm. Um, and it's the success of the patients and the advocacy community. And if I've been able to play a role in that, that's very, very fulfilling for me. And that's a case where there was a family who, through their connections, in that case to the New York Times, were able to play to their strength, which was access to the media and to tell the story in a very effective way. And that funding that was gathered has been used to bring together a group of researchers who might not otherwise have known one another. And there are now some very promising therapies under trial. So. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great example of the way that we, we work together in the advocacy community mm -hmm. and that one person's success is everybody's success. Uh, each step we take is a step forward, I think, for the whole community. So, you know, I can't match Michael's story, which is amazing and inspiring to all of us, or Duhang, but uh, I, I think in a way we can all share in that as long as we all play our role and we step up at every opportunity. I think that's tremendously important. You know, I, I think another success, or, or what I would hope to see as a success has just been as an advocate within uh, the medical community to always raise awareness of rare diseases. And you can do that in different ways. One of my hats has been as an examiner for the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. So I am always pushing to have rare diseases included in examinations, and they are and people learn about them because they know they're going to be asked. So that's a small thing, but raising awareness in that way is important, but it's not enough. You have to have a plan, as Michael and others have pointed out. Once you've got people's attention, you've got to know what to do with it. 
and then have a plan to move forward. How are we going to develop a therapy and help these people? And it's not always the blockbusting drug. Sometimes it's just access to services or recognizing that people with chronic rare diseases need uh, habilitation services throughout their life, that it shouldn't be based on a stroke model, for example. So many examples I could give, but I, I think the theme is you have to be persistent and aware and work together as part of the team. Thank you. Um, so I'm gonna ask someone to be brave here. So I was also hoping maybe someone would like to share, is there anything our audience can learn from um, maybe a strategy that was not successful, something, an obstacle that was insurmountable or something that you've learned along the way from a strategy that uh, may not have, have worked that well? that we can learn from? I don't know about a strategy that doesn't work because I think you haven't played, you only know it doesn't work when you've played it to the end. And I think, you know, we just got a rare disease drug strategy. You know, I got the chance to stand up after the minister made the announcement and I looked at the minister and I said, thank you very much, minister. You know, I gave you this proposal 10 years ago. <laughs> Uh, you know, so, I mean, I wasn't saying it nastily. I was just basically finding him, you know, and I said, and we first wrote it 15, I said, we first, you know, wrote it 15 years ago. I said, I know, because I wrote it. So sometimes you kind of hit the wall and you hit the wall and you hit the wall and you hit the wall. And I think it's Michael and everybody else that said, you don't give up. And, you know, so you don't know that anything's failed. Nothing has failed until, you know, it's, you know, until, and I don't think it's ever over. I think we learn from each step along the way. So I think my, you know, I think it feels like a failure because you don't get what you want. It feels like a failure because you ask for something, you know, and you, you know, it's one of my researchers sent me a little bridge map and says, shoot for the moon. Even if you fail, you land among the stars, right? Which is one of the things I remember, right? Okay, so I didn't get the moon, but we're up there. So, I don't know, Erica, it doesn't answer your question because I think we've all had failures. I've had tremendous failures. I had more failures than I've had successes, that's for sure. I've had more people die on me than I would care to count you know, on. Um, but, you know, those aren't failures. You know, I was just at, uh, I would say we were just at the WHO meeting on the um, medicines for rare diseases. Uh, you know, one of the advocates spoke about SMA and he says, you know what, by the time we get done with this meeting, 120 kids will have died. You know, in Canada, a child dies of a rare disease every 39 minutes. Mm. Yeah, those are failures. I mean, those are startling when you think about it. But, you know, and those are, yes, they're failures, but they're a road towards, right, what the success is going to be. So I think that's kind of what we have to learn from this. We, we have failures. We all have failures. We have things that we try over and over and over again. Somewhere along the line, as Michael says, if you're still alive, there are many, many thousands who have died. But, you know, you look at the ones who are there and you say, okay, you know yeah. what? Um, Doreen, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm, Erica, I'm going to, I bet all everyone on this panel would say the same thing. Nothing's insurmountable. Yes, you will face failures, but you either end run around that failure, you learn from that failure. I think cystic fibrosis is a perfect example. There's a rare disease. Uh, pharma had, I don't know, sort of given up. Uh, not given up, but wasn't doing the research. And so cystic fibrosis said, 
we'll do the early research. We will fund the early days research. And they did, and they partnered with Vertex Pharmaceuticals. And I will never forget this story as long as I live. I was at an NIH meeting and a mother stood up and was telling the story. Now it had, we, they had had their early first successes and I think it was successful in maybe 7% or some very small percent, it's bigger now. And the mother stood up and said, they would have to, um, um, uh, what's the word when you have to bang on their backs at night? Um, percussion, yeah. Yeah, yeah they have percussion. You do it. You could do it electronically or mechanically or by hand. And the mother said, "Our son came into the room, um, and of course they just assumed he needed to be he needed to be percussed. And he went in and tell them he didn't need to be percussed. Uh, mm. That was a that was a that was an organization." that hit a wall and figured out some other way to hit, to go around that wall. And now I think it's up to 14%. And I think with God's willing, they'll cure cystic fibrosis. Well, perseverance so. is a great lesson. So thank you for sharing those. Um, unfortunately, we'll have to stop there as we've run out of time, but many, many, many thanks to all our panelists for being with us today. It's been a delight, um, so informative talking with you all. I learned so much, and I, I hope our audience did as well. Um, a reminder to our viewers that you can see a recording of this webinar, as well as all the other previous events in this series at science.org webinars. This webinar is the first in a series of six running this year, so look out for more coming soon. Thank you once again to all of our panel and to Foundation Ipsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone.